Welcome to another episode of Jim and Pat's Glasgow West End Chat. I know it's been a while and we haven't quite got our act together post-Covid, post-lockdown. But I'm excited and delighted, or delighted and excited, whatever way you, you fancy, to be chatting on uh, today's podcast, which is number 92, to Billy Kay. Billy Kay is a much-honoured writer, broadcaster, multilinguist, and importantly, a champion of the Scots language, most notably through his book, The Mother Tongue, or The Mother Tongue, which is a book both inspiring and shocking. Uh, if you read it yourself, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I definitely would recommend it to you. Probably, or maybe, you came across Billy only recently because he gave an address to the Scottish Parliament which amazingly was the first ever address that had been given in the Scots language. So, Scots spoken in the Scottish Parliament. Heaven forbid. Uh, I don't really need to tell you much more about Billy because there's far too much to tell you. All I would say is uh, Google Billy. He's got a great website that's full of stuff and he's everywhere. He's written numerous books, made numerous broadcasts, won numerous awards, etc. Too much to cover in a podcast intro. But one thing I did notice while chatting to Billy is that just chatting to him made me feel more intelligent. Now that's definitely a skill to have. So I was just about to start, but a warning before we start. Uh, one of the things is that we are both uh, people who see the benefits of Scottish independence. So we're both supporters. So I would uh, say to you to expect to hear strong political opinions expressed throughout. Okay, let's have a wee chat with a wonderful Billy Kay. The thing I was thinking we'd maybe start with uh, was to do with uh, your recent, no, maybe not so recent now, mind you, uh, talk at the Holyrood. Simply mm-hmm. because, although I was aware of you before that, and I think I'd even emailed you a couple of times before that for various things, uh, you seemed to kind of blow up after that. I remember there was a hell of a Ferrari after you did your talk at Holyrood. And yeah. for, for a few days after that, you know, there was a lot, a lot of chat about your, about your, uh, your speech in Scots, and the yes. Scottish Parliament, which I, I just found hilarious. Actually, the whole idea. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> well, it's hilarious, but it's it's tragic at the same time yeah. that there's such a, a level of ignorance in the country about such an important part of their, their heritage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's going on in Twitter today. There's some, <laughs> there's some idiots in Twitter today yeah. uh, going on about this. Uh, they've never heard... They, somebody said they'd never heard of it until I made that speech. So really, they must, they must right. be going about with their, their, their lugs and their eyes firmly closed because... To say yeah. that you live in lowland Scotland and I've never heard Scots eh, is, tra- is a sad indictment of of yeah. the country in a lot of ways. But I've, I've a feeling a lot of it's posturing because the bizarre thing is that eh, whereas there was indifference towards Scottish culture from people who adhere to the union and a unionist outlook in the past, that's now changed. It's now rank antipathy mm-hmm. towards Scottish culture or important aspects of it, like Gaelic and Scots. It's become hostile, aggressive antipathy towards it rather than a passive, I will just let them go on with it. And I would say that's that's changed even in the last 10 years i would say that's changed right. it's gotten worse in the last year in the last 10 years i'm i'm a, taking part in a conference in the basque country in july and talking about scottish identity and i'm talking about that about the that shift over yeah. from ambivalence to antipathy that seems to hit a section, it's a tiny section, but a tiny uh, a section of Scottish society, which I don't think was there, a, wasn't it there as badly, certainly, yeah. 10 years ago? I mean, it's interesting you say that because, I mean, 
I had only thought that that was uh, connected with the politics uh, and the independence movement. Yeah. And always what had been in the past, for probably the last few hundred years, has been a certain uh, lack of confidence in a lot of Scottish people, you know, because mm -hmm. of the union and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. uh, But as you say, it's, it's moved from the personal <laughs> of individuals being slightly ashamed of their Scottishness uh, which obviously is related to, you know, the way the media works and the way that Scotland yes. and England has worked for the last few yes. hundred years, towards, would you say, this more uh, aggressiveness, uh, mm -hmm. almost anti-Scottishness, or not even yes. anti-Scottishness, it's a kind of anti-identifying with Scottish culture uh, yes. notion, you know, like uh, you could be Scottish as long as you don't express yourself as in a Scottish manner, <laughs> that's that, that's what it and that's what it comes down to, and that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate colonized mentality. That uh, I mean, I, I've on Twitter and various other places, and I'll be using it again at this conference. That tiny section of society are there's a Portuguese term mm -hmm. that was used in the colonial period for people in Mozambique and Angola, in Portuguese colonies, who are taken out, literally, of uh, Africa mm -hmm. and educated in Portuguese universities. And they were called assimilados, assimilated people. Mm -hmm. And so the elites who eventually became the leaders in these places in Angola and Mozambique were assimilated into Portuguese culture. And eventually, they adopted the attitudes of Portuguese culture via V, the traditional culture of Africa, and mm -hmm. tended to look down on it and look down on it as barbaric, provincial, not modern, etc. Yeah. And uh, the word assimilado, an assimilated person, to me, that word sums up perfectly these people that we've just yeah. been talking about, people who are so. Uh, deracinated from their Scottish roots that they've become assimilated English yep. stroke British yep. and despise, I think despise themselves, yeah. but despise, despise the people they come from and any expression of Scottish culture from the people they come from. And it's a, a strange, strange phenomenon. It's gone from the cringe, which is what you describe about some people being embarrassed by their Scottishness. It's gone from that to an aggressive attack on people who mm -hmm. manifest pride in their Scottishness. Yeah. It's a strange, strange phenomenon. It's a kind of brew, isn't it? It's a strange, strange mix of, of things. I mean, the, the yes. idea of the Scottish cringe, as you know, is not a new thing. You know, yeah. I, I was listening to a couple of podcasts prior to this today uh, where you were getting interviewed just to just wanted to hear yep. some th some stuff from you and you were talking to Derek Bateman and mm -hmm. it must have been uh, it must have been a while ago actually I'm not sure when that was I think it would be about the time of the referendum maybe or right, just right. before it yeah yeah and uh, it was talking about uh, God what was it this idea of Scotland being a, a What's the, what's the word? You mentioned the word a minute ago, of course. I've got the worst name colony. in the world. A colony, yeah. Colony, okay. Uh, and, and you were saying, well, you know, it's uh, mostly artistic. You know, that it, takes, it takes the shape of uh, people being ashamed of their own art and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. And, and I can relate to that, you know, because mm -hmm. I remember being incredibly angry when, uh, I mean, I love Scottish painting, you know, I love Scottish painters and it's something I'm interested mm -hmm. in. And I remember going to the you know, that major national art gallery in Edinburgh. This would be, could be 10 years ago, I can't remember exactly. And all of the Scottish art was in the basement. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I was incredibly mad about the whole thing, you know. I thought, what is it? This is, this? This is the main Scottish art gallery in Scotland. Yes, yes. Uh, and all of the Scottish art is in the basement. And of course, mm -hmm. in the basement, there's very few people wandering around. Uh, yes. And no status is afforded to, their own, to Scotland's own artists. And yes. I love Scotland. You know, I love you know, all, mostly I suppose uh, Scottish art from the 18th century up to, well, I suppose, uh, end of the 19th century. Mostly, 
and the colorist and the Glasgow mm -hmm. boys and the folk before that. I love all yeah. that stuff. And they had lots of those paintings in there. Yes. And they're absolutely fantastic. You know, the the part of the movement, you know, of modernism and all that kind of stuff. These people yeah, yeah. are up, up there. And yet, they're stuck in the basement. And it seemed to me to sort of exemplify Aye. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> some, yeah. some things yeah. about people's attitudes. Yes, uh, yes. Towards you know Scotland and Scot Scottish output in terms of art. Yes, but well, it's, but it's interesting too that those self same artists. I mean, I've got several Ferguson prints down right. in my hall, and uh, I'm a big fan of the Ferguson Museum just along the river in Perth. Go there, try and go there once a year, and uh, Ferguson was one of these great. European internationalist figures it was. who worked and lived in France and they uh, thought Scotland belonged in that world, in that Absolutely. world. And, Absolutely. and ironically, here we are on the anniversary of uh, Brexit six years ago today, when we were taken out of that world against our will. And uh, basically, it's time to refocus our attention to make sure we get back into that world as soon as possible. Because the people who have produced the culture the artists, the writers, the actors, the everyone associated with Scottish culture, very few of them belong to that unionist thread that we've, we've just mentioned. Yeah. Most of them support uh, the political expression and the well, political right. support of their art and their culture. I mean, Ferguson is a they think that's normal. particular example. Of course, he wrote a book, which I was actually, I've already, I had it years ago and I've read some of it, I haven't read it all. But uh, this morning, uh, some of these things popped into my head <laughs> because mm -hmm. I was going to speak to you. Mm -hmm. And I remember the book you wrote was called Modern Scottish Painting. Uh, mm -hmm. appeared in 1943. I don't know if you came across it, but if you've not, you should definitely get a yes. hold of it. Because in that, he actually talks about, I mean, he's a Scottish independence supporter. Yes. <laughs> through and through. Uh, yes. And that book is, is about, it's not just about Scottish independence, it's about independence of thought, you know, and all sorts of yes. things like that. <laughs> Uh, and even way back, because I, you know I'm interested in in, uh, in art, I think you mentioned on one of the other podcasts about uh, Alan Ramsey, uh, mm -hmm. and of course Alan Ramsey's father was a poet uh, and writer, and as a mm -hmm. painter, and it wasn't. I mean, I've read some stuff, but I've got a book about Alan Ramsey, and, but it wasn't anything about this in the book actually. Strangely enough, but I remember uh, something that Alan Ramsey said about he existed uh, just on the you know. At the last time that Scotland, Scotland was an independent country, so one of the things that I, that I either read on the wall or or somewhere when I was at one of his exhibitions was this this notion that the union was a terrible thing uh, for art in Scotland because mm -hmm. all of the artists all disappeared down south. <laughs> you know, it's like, all, well, that's the thing. More or power, less, you know, power and money tend to go together, yeah. and a Patronage, yeah, that's right. Ten, tends to be around where there are centres of power. So, and it was the same earlier with the union of the crowns. The same thing happened with the the great writers. Mm -hmm. The court had been a, a source of power and patronage in Scotland, mm -hmm. and uh, great writers like uh, Dunbar were attached to the court of James the Fourth and James the Fifth. So, when James the Sixth and that's a good example. James VI's court uh, in the 1590s was a hotbed of Scottish culture and right. Scottish writing. There was a group of poets called the Castilian Band, who, uh, including Alexander Montgomery, who were brilliant poets. And he had a group of poets around him who were linked in with some French writers and poets who came and lived in Edinburgh and went back and forward to France. So part of that European world picture. And James VI even wrote a book called Rules and Cottles to be Eschewed in Scottish Poetry, the rules and regulations of how to write good Scots poetry. Uh, now that all disappeared when he crossed the border mm -hmm. and went to London. Some of the poets went with him but literally, James and the poets, they practically translated themselves as they crossed the border and realised that uh, this was the centre of power from now on and they would adapt their native muse to, uh, to English. 
Yeah. Now, Scott survived in Scotland and would survive in literature for until the present day. But the important thing is the source of money to support the best of the, the writers went south. Mm -hmm. And that had a, left a gap in Scottish culture for, for, a, for a long time. So that's, that's the story. That's, that's where it is, you know. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about, uh, or maybe we never used the word, but the Scottish cringe earlier on. And again, this is not a new thing. And I'm sure you yeah. know, and again, I'm, I'm no expert in any of these things, you know, I have to say. I read bits and pieces and I pick it up. Uh, and I was reading, this was years ago, Boswell uh, in his diary. And of course, he was probably one of the most embarrassed Scots in history. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> but when was he writing? Was that the 18th century? I can't remember exactly. That, that, yeah, that was the, yeah. Boswell was after, just after the, after the Union, middle of the 18th century. Right. And he was, he was very conflicted uh, in his approach to, to Scottish because one minute he comes away with patriotic Scottish statements and the yeah. next minute he's a groveling cringer. Groveling famously, cringer is probably quite a good description of a lot of what he was doing, unfortunately. Well, but famously, he, in my book, Scots the Mother Tongue, I, I, I describe the incident where He's introduced to Dr. Bo Dr. Johnson for the first yeah. time. And Dr. Johnson was a, a famous or infamous Scotophobe. He couldn't yeah, yeah. stand the Scots and the number of Scots, as he saw it, taking over in London. It was being swarmed with Scots on the make. And he deeply resented this. So Boswell, who wanted to curry favour with him and wanted to keep in with him because he was one of the great literary figures of the period, and Boswell wanted to be in this coterie. And he told the guy who was going to be introducing him, don't tell him I come from Scotland. And the guy to wind up Boswell said, Mr. James Boswell, who comes from Scotland. And Boswell was so flustered by this and exposed by this, he said something like, I do indeed come from Scotland, but I cannot help it. And tried to make a joke of it. Yeah. But he says how embarrassed he was and how how cringe-inducing the whole situation was. And, but yet, in other times, I made a, when I made a programme about the declaration of our growth, lo and behold, eh, Boswell, during the Grand Tour, goes to a university library in Leipzig where he and his fellow Grand Tourists, aristocrats, come across a book which has the declaration of our growth in it. And he waxes lyrical about the beauty and the power of a, the Declaration of Our Growth and the famous lines about as long as a hundred of us remain alive. And his conclusion is, alas, poor Scotland. In other words, what have we done to ourselves to go from the glory of the Declaration to what we are now? Yeah. So he was very conflicted. He's not black and white like a lot of people from that period. And there's a lot of people, I say, until this hardening of attitudes between unionist and nationalist or right-wing British nationalists and left-of-centre Scottish nationalists in, the, in recent times, I knew a lot of people who still could be proud Scottish patriots but could be staunch unionists. Right. Uh, but I think, that, I think that group is slowly being eroded uh, so the, I think they're becoming quite unusual, uh, that combination. Whereas at the height of the empire, that combination was totally normal and was, for example, uh, the, the monument to William Wallace, that was built at the height of the British Empire when Scottish Unionism was probably never as strong again. Right. in that period, in the 19th century. Yet yeah, there they were, building a monument to Wallace, and they didn't see that as contradicting being British and supporting the empire. Well, that reminds me of, if you don't mind me buttoning a wee bit, it reminds me of uh, Scott, you know, uh, Sir Walter Scott. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, of course, he, one of, the, one of our uh, most famous writers, but he was... Uh, very much in with the establishment. From you know, I read his diaries years and years ago. I can't remember that much about it, but I do remember when uh, that he organised the 
the whole sort of visit from the royal the royals uh, yes. and was very sort of proud to do that and yes. you know was part in some sense what you're saying he was all he was a scot and he had clearly from the way he wrote and the, the way he thought uh i'm sure he was a proud scot but also yeah. a kind of a unionist <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, and very and seemed to relate very much to that kind of wider UK, you know, or, or almost London-centric sort of view. Yes, and liked to know people, important people, because he seen himself as, right. import, as important. You know, yes, he really had a very big ego uh, in some sense. So maybe he's the epitome <laughs> of the the Scot, who's also. You know, Price Scott is also a unionist. Maybe that I don't know. I just give. Yes, no. He on. he is he is a great example of of that tradition. Maybe the greatest example certainly is the greatest writer of people with that world picture. I would say, and uh, no, well, there's a, an interesting thing. I <clears throat> I took part in a celebration for his two hundred fiftieth birthday in St Giles Cathedral last October. Right. And it was a big set piece celebration with opera singers singing Lucia de Lammer Moor, with uh, Ali Bain and uh, Phil Cunningham playing mm -hmm. Scots airs. I did a reading from the Lorimer Bible. The Duke of Buccleuch gave a reading, a quote from, from Scott about Scott being patriotic, breeze there the man with soul so dead who never to himself had said, this is my own, my native land. So there was a lot of unionists around that celebration. Right. But because they identified with Scott and that period where they could be both without any contradiction, eh, then it was something I was happy to take part in. Mm -hmm. eh, but I think... As that generation, that older generation goes, I think there will be fewer and fewer people able to have that dual unionist identity in the future. I think there's been a hardening mm -hmm. in the past 20, 30 years, modern, just in the period that modern Scottish nationalism developed and they saw their unionist uh, identity, they, as they see it being threatened, then I think that's where the hardening comes about. Mm -hmm. And the closer we get to independence, the harder it will get for them, I think. I'd imagine so. If you don't mind, can I move on a wee bit uh, mm -hmm. backwards? I mean, one of the things, that, I mean, you, you've you seem to be one of the most decorated men in the world from looking <laughs> <laughs> having read your bio, uh, and you seem to have done everything from writing books to making plays to doing poetry to doing broadcasting, all sorts of stuff going on. And it made me think, you know, how did you, what were your parents, what did your parents, I mean, clearly you had a lot of confidence as a young person uh, yeah. to be able to do some of the things you've done. And I'm always interested in how people become who they yes. become, you know, uh, what the turning points were, etc. And a lot of the time, not a lot of the time, but often it's to do with uh, what their parents did, you know, what mm -hmm. expectations they had as a youngster that were thrust yeah. upon them by their education or, or their environment. Uh, so I'm interested in what that was for you, you know, growing up mm -hmm. in Ayrshire, you know. Yes. Heard you wax lyrical about Ayrshire and some other podcasts, and it all seemed very idyllic. And <laughs> but, well, you know, it, was, it was a period of the 1950s. I was born in 1951. So it was a period of practically full employment, uh, the, the, the 50s and the early 1960s. So if you wanted a job, you would get it. Mm -hmm. So the working class I belonged to, the respectable working class I belonged to, were employed. And uh, there weren't drugs on the street. Uh, communities were communities. Mm -hmm. There was a strong working class and local identity in a place like Galston, where I was where I grew up. Therefore, it was a great place to grow up. Mm -hmm. Now, my, my mother and father, my dad was a, growing up, worked in Massey Ferguson, the big tractor factory, yeah, combine yeah. harvester factory yeah. in Kilmarnock. And he was a charge hand there. So not quite a foreman, between a worker and a foreman, a charge hand they were called. And that's what, that's what my dad did. So, and my mum, 
he looked after the family, brought right. three children up brilliantly, and uh, was full of stories. And uh, I, I, my, my sisters come through yesterday from Ayrshire to visit me to see our new granddaughter Arabella, who's six months old, and uh, she's visiting just now. And uh, my sisters immediately come away with brilliant rhymes and stories and games for newborn babies. Uh, runabout, runabout, get the wee moose up the stairs, up the stairs, in the wee hoose. Things that my mother just did all the time. Yeah. And it was great to be reminded of these. And the, the baby just loved them because they've been tried and tested for hundreds of years, these rhymes and things and stories. So uh, it was very loving, rich environment. Interestingly, although nobody in my family had gone to university, they were all big readers. So both my mum and my dad uh, went to the library all the time and took home books and were great readers of books. A favourite with my mother was uh, the Bronte sisters. She was always reading the Bronte, the Bronte sisters. And the result of that was that when I went to university, because I was good at languages, because I was fluent and bilingual in Scots and English, in a rich dialect of Scots, because we were the last pre-television generation, we were the last people to not have English culture beamed into a room on a daily basis. First, I think about 12 years of my life, there's no TV. Right. So we belong to that generation where it was very much the Scottish village rather than a global village that we inhabited. And with rich linguistic traditions, supported by the fact that Burns was our poet and mm -hmm. uh, everyone could quote Burns and sing Burns' songs. So a very rich environment. And when I went to university, because I was good at uh, Scots and English and therefore found it easy to learn French and German when I was 13, 14, 15, my parents came to university with me and read the books. Right. I remember, I remember my dad saying, the only, the only two books I remember him saying that he couldn't get into were James Joyce's Ulysses and William Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury. Now, both are difficult books. You really have to get into them. And uh, it helps if you're steeped in literary culture to be able to get into them. In other words, my dad read everything else in, in, my, in my university career, but those stood out for him as being hard. He couldn't quite get into them. But other than that, he made an effort to try and read what I was reading at yeah. university. And my mother the same. So that was that respectable working class desire it's highly for education. Don't you think, though? I mean, traditionally, working class people don't go, did not go to university. You know, I would they didn't imagine. go to university. But yeah. because of that, a town like Galston had every kind of character that you could imagine from no very bright folk, mm -hmm. to intellectuals yeah. who were part of a local intelligentsia, but they were self-educated. They, they grew up just reading and educating themselves. And that was the same in the other place that I've got family connections is West Fife, because my, some of my mother's side of the family were miners from West Fife. One side from miners from Ayrshire, other from West Fife. So in Bowhill, Cardenden, Logelly, Cowdenbeath, and the little Moscows of West Fife, there was the same tradition, usually tied in with a communist tradition, of educating working class people, educating themselves. Yeah. Now, again, it must seem like a strange alien world to describe this, but that's the way it was. For example, a writer like Hugh McDermott would regularly visit Bowhill, a mining village, to discuss. Marxist politics and literature with a guy murdered who lived in Bow Hill. You know, that's yeah. the way it was. That wasn't a tradition that had died out by the time I was 17, actually. I remember, actually, <laughs> I was also involved in that world to, to a certain extent uh, because yes. I've, I've always been political. I mean, I was a member of the sort of young Youth Labour Party and some yeah. of the other sort of uh, related splinter groups uh, from then. And I do remember what you're describing there. There was a tradition within sort of socialist left wing uh, culture 
of education, <laughs> of yes. reading books, <laughs> yes, having meetings where people would discuss the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, let's discuss Marx's uh, Des Capital in this meeting. Yes, that kind of which is it seems seems almost absurd these days. Well, but, I, but it should it shouldn't be absurd because that tradition that you took part in yeah. went back went back hundreds of years, yeah. and it went back hundreds of years because Scotland was one of the first countries in Europe to try and teach mass literacy to its population. Yeah. So from the 16th century and the Reformation onwards, you had people who could read and write. Yeah. And that developed the, exactly the mentality and the kind of people you're talking about. There's a great figure from the 19th century uh, called Hugh Miller, Cromarty stonemason, who was one of the pioneers of geology in the British Isles. And in his books, I quote it in my book, The Scottish World, in his books, it, it contrasts hugely. When he goes travelling in, in England, he contrasts the mentality and the educational level of the working class that he grew up with and was still surrounded with among his fellow stonemasons in Scotland compared to the working classes in the Midlands, I remember, is one of the places he goes to. Mm-hmm. And it would almost be described as a kind of racist term that you wouldn't get off with nowadays, but he describes those people as the vacant English. And he's talking about the masses in a working area, I think it's Dudley in the West Midlands, because he's just astonished for about their lack of education, their lack of interest in reading. Mm-hmm compared to the people he came from. So it's very, it's a different world. It's a world world that existed for about three centuries, and it's only maybe in the 20th, late 20th and 21st century that that's begun to be eroded and seems exotic to us. I mean, it reminds me of another thing. I did a a social science degree, but I I mostly did politics in my honours, ideology and uh, I also did stuff to, to do with administration and all that kind of stuff. But I had a politics lecturer called David Donald, who was an absolutely fantastic guy. And he used to speak about uh, the culture of Scottish education, which we exported to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Uh, and one of the things we just, we studied in some, in some aspects of our course was how factories in Japan or whatever were organised. And he spoke about the influence of Scottish education. <laughs> In yes. relation to all of these things, uh, yes, and how there was a part of a Scottish education was that was it was a totally different notion about about students and and talent, etc. It says a, a student is it, it's not that they can't uh, a student can be written off. You know, they can say, well, they can't learn that. That's impossible. We tried to mm. teach them, it didn't work. But whereas in the Scottish uh, side of things, no, actually, they will always get it if you just. Keep, if you just explain it in a slightly different way uh, yeah. and keep at it, everybody can learn everything basically mm-hmm. if you just keep at it. Everybody's got the capability. And that sounds like a very small thing, but it has, has huge implications for how you teach people. Yeah. <laughs> so well, of course, it, of course it does. And I mean, the phrase democratic intellectualism, the democratic intellect, the marvelous book by George Elder Davy which uh, was one of the most influential books I ever read, which is about that tradition that we're talking about and about how the British government tried to erode it within the Scottish universities in the 19th century, tried to take it away from a broad-based baccalaureate-style education where everyone did a science, a language, etc., right across the curriculum, and tried to force it to reduce that and make it more like the English specialisation tradition yeah. of the A-levels versus the hires. He did six hires in Scotland, three A-levels in England, they specialised much much earlier. And also the fact that people from the kind of backgrounds that didn't go to university in England did go to university in Scotland. So the, the democratic intellect is all about that. And the democratic intellect had effects all over the world, especially in the universities in North America, places like Princeton, which were Presbyterian colleges initially, but also in in British colonies in Africa, where often it was the Presbyterians who got in 
first in certain areas, and taught the native people there to read and write mm -hmm. and to reach a high degree of education. So even compared to other North European Calvinist nations like the Dutch, the Scots had a much, a much more democratic view of the of their in their attitude towards native cultures in Africa and places like Malawi. And I've done programs on this, and I write it up in my. There's a chapter in uh, the Scottish World called "The Democratic Intellect," which is about this. And coming across colleges in Mary Slessor's Nigeria or uh, David Livingstone's Malawi uh, or Walls of Livingstonia, people like that, where they taught African people at the same level as they taught Scottish people and using often the same curriculum. And that was quite different from yeah. the Dutch and the English missionaries. So even there, we had a much more democratic approach to things than was the case with even other Northern European Calvinist countries. Yeah, which again is part of the sort of history of how Scotland approaches things differently. Yes. You know, for, I mean, I have to, probably there'll be people listening to our uh, Jim and Pat's podcast who don't necessarily share our political uh, uh, viewpoint on Scottish independence. So I have to apologise to them because we're talking a lot about it at the moment. Uh, because I'm pretty passionate about it myself. But one of the things, I, I don't know whether, uh, I think I might have heard you talking about it as well in some of these other podcasters, this notion of, uh, what I'm trying to say here, uh, we're all in it together idea, the, the, the more sort of uh, equality and... Uh, ah, egalitarianism. Egalitarianism, and, yeah, which is, all, which is kind of embedded in some of these early... Uh, documents, one of which you mentioned earlier on, uh, yes. which seems to be part of Scottish culture, uh, uniquely, uh, and you know, in the UK perhaps I don't know, doesn't seem to be part of English culture. Uh, so we don't have quite so much of the. Actually, again, it will be anecdote which which made me which tiny wee anecdote, which was to do with uh, somebody said to me that in America, people who work in the service sector. Are almost fit, they almost adopt a kind of servants approach, servants and master approach. Whereas in Scotland, mm -hmm. you go into a shop, and no shopkeeper would ever, for a second, think that they were a servant at all. Everybody's yes. equal, and they're serving yes. you in the shop. And it was just that wee kind of notion that seemed to sum it up for me was that in Scotland everybody's the same, and thinks you know it's not true, of course, because there's a class yes. system. But yes. we lean towards that more. Whereas in yes. some countries, there is a notion that you slot in uh, somewhere within the kind of hierarchy of status and you, and you adopt yeah. that place while you're in the situation of serving somebody in a shop or whatever. And to me, that kind yes. of summed up a certain Scottishness. Uh, it, it, it does. That can, that can be taken too far. And you can get the subtly Scot serving you yeah. Uh, because they deeply resent the fact that they are serving you. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> in a lot of in yeah. countries in Europe, as my wife is Portuguese, and uh, for example, a waiter in a restaurant in Portugal will take pride in his professionalism yep. and will yep. be very good at what he does and uh, doesn't have any hang ups at all about what he does. Whereas maybe because of the history, of service. And I think that maybe goes back to the fact that a lot of working class people were in service, in other words, they worked for wealthy people mm -hmm. as maids, chambermaids, yeah. nannies, a footmen, butlers. So I think service was eventually stigmatized. And when people come out of service, right. and the service economy, maybe after the First World War especially, and things became more democratized. Some people resented the fact that they still had to serve people, uh, and maybe some of the subtleness that you that you used to get uh, uh, stemmed from that. I 
because I was good at speaking French and German, for example, I got a job working as a tour guide when I left university. I spent a couple of summers taking French and German people around Scotland in a, in a bus. A, and the some of the some of the I remember it was the Carlton Hotel on the North Bridge in the, in Edinburgh, which is now called something else. And they had a dinner there on a Friday where when they arrived before we set off to the Highlands, and the old waitresses in the Carlton, literally. They had no idea about good service. It was just like bang it doon, bang it doon, bang yeah. it doon. Oh Aggie, where's this one? It was just it really was. <laughs> it was funny. It was so bad at right. times. And these sophisticated uh, Parisians <laughs> experiencing this type of Scottish service for the first time was uh, was quite a culture shock for them. I can imagine. No, I have. Re I do recognise that. <laughs> that was in that period. That was me talking about the nineteen eighties. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Late nineteen seventies. Sorry, late nineteen seventies. That's when that was. I mean, I, still, I think it's still around. Uh, I went to a funeral not too who it was recently, and there was a, you know you went back to be community place after it. Yeah. It was very much like that. <laughs> Right, right. The stuff was thrown at you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like, yeah. It was like, kind of, why are you here? I can't be bothered with you. <laughs> You're Aye, taking up my time. Indeed. Uh, yes. About it, you know. Uh, and I, yeah. I don't know where it came from, but that was certainly what was, what was yes. going on, you know, uh, which is strange. But just to get back just momentarily to the thing about the uh, when you were young and this idea mm -hmm. of confidence. I say you, you clearly... You you went to university, which you say you know is as if everybody went to university, and that's you know that's not the case. Did you that expectation of education? Did that come from that com combination of your parents and the community that you grew up in, or was there something else there about yourself or about your experience or some? Yeah, uh, what I think made it that was a, situation well, happen. Well, there was a reverence. I'm in the respectable working class for education and getting on in life. But nobody from my extended family, and I had a big extended family, had gone to university. Yeah. So it was just the, it was the fact that I was brilliant at languages, right. simple as that. I was hopeless at maths and sciences, yeah. so much so that when I took my hires, a Kilmarnock Academy allowed me to draw maths. And I think I was the only person right. allowed to drop mass and they put me on to study in Russian. So I was able to study Russian, French, and German right. at Kalmanic Academy and then after Golston High School, where I did my O-levels. And uh, I was so good at languages, I think because of the Scots-English duality that I grew right. up with, that uh, it was, and it was a time of full grants. Right, in other course, words, yeah. my parents, working class, a say a factory wage coming into the house, but because we could apply for grants, then they could we could afford for me to go to university. Yeah. So those were the things. Me being exceptionally good at languages and uh, wanting to do initially a French and German degree because right. I was good at languages, but then discovering my own culture at university and switching to a Scottish, mainly Scottish culture degree. Those were the factors that got me there. There's another school? wee story. Pardon? Sorry, on you go. No, on you go. Uh, yeah, I think the the language teachers realised I was pretty good. I think yeah, I was pretty good at, at languages and had me earmarked and had me getting told that uh, you'd be good enough to go to university right. if you wanted if you wanted to go. So there were good teachers who took me aside. Yeah, yeah. And, and told me that. But another, just another story from Galston. Uh, Neighbours of, of ours, where it was an amazing family called the Murrays. And it was John Murray, who was the provost of Galston when I was a wee boy growing up. And he was still a, he was still a minor. He had been a minor. I think he was still a minor when I was a wee, wee boy. His brother James, who was still a minor, and his sister Annie, 
who looked after the two of them. They lived round the corner from me in a council house in the scheme in Gosden. Annie had gone to a college in Glasgow. What was the name of the Catholic educational college in Glasgow? Uh, you're asking uh, the wrong person. I've been no memory. Right. Uh, the name's just gone out of my head. It might come yeah. back. Annie had gone to do teacher's training. She was a bright, bright uh, young woman. She had gone to do teacher's training in Glasgow in the hope that she'd become a teacher. But her wasn't York Hill, died, was it? Died. No, no it wasn't York Hill, no, but it was no. somewhere in the West End, I remember. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and she had had to leave college to come back and look after her brothers. All right, okay. While they were literally doing the pit, she looked after the household. But Annie was, I was literally handed over to her as a greeting Wayne when I was about two or something like that. And I visited them all my life in Golson until I went to Edinburgh University and still visited Annie until she died. <clears throat> Annie, before she left college, was studying French. And she had a wee bookcase in her house, and it was full of Achette, the French publisher, versions of Moliere, Racine, people like that. And Annie gave me those books to read when I was 13. Right, okay. And I was reading, because my French was so good, I was able to read parts of these, and she helped me with it. So again, this is <clears throat> in a working-class housing scheme in Galston, You've got a lady teaching a wee boy Racine and Moliere at the age of 12 and 13. Yeah. And me being given those books and thinking this was totally normal. Yeah, you were soaking that, it up. Yeah. Hi. That's aye. amazing. Yeah. So, so you went to university. Uh, initially, you were uh, learning uh, English literature. Is that right? Is that my meaning? No, initially, it was, it was French and German. I was French doing German. a modern languages yeah, degree. Right, okay. But you eventually and I could switched. Have, I could have done that, but I, I realised that Scottish literature was available. Right, Scottish literature, yeah. I yeah. and I had had been given a prize of Sunset Song, Louis oh, right, okay. Gibbons, Scotch yeah, yeah. Queer, and I always loved Burns. I loved uh, yeah. learning Burns because of my Ayrshire background. So when I saw I could study Scottish, I did that as an outside course, but loved it so much. Right. I then asked if I could switch to doing a, an English degree, but an English degree that was mainly Scottish literature and American literature, right, which okay. I was also very interested in. So, so I switched did, to doing. How did that get into your head? You know that this. You know, how did you become interested in that, or even think that that was a possibility? I mean, one. Of the, <laughs> I mean, it's like very few people, uh, certainly at that time, would be thinking, "Oh yeah, Scots, that's the thing." You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to read Scottish uh, writers, or writers who write in Scots. Uh, that would be unusual. Well, it was it, it, it was all kinds of Scottish literature. It was Walter Scott and John right. Walt going back to the markers. So it was a mixture of <clears throat> Scots and English. Yeah. Writers in Scots and English. But it was just a history of Scottish literature, one and two. And I just loved it yeah. and realised that what it made me realise was I knew very little about my own culture and uh, I wanted to learn. Right. It was just in me. I just always responded to things Scottish. I say in I talk about an incident where the library in Kilmarnock and museum across the road from the old Kilmarnock Academy was called the Dick Institute. And I used to go there at lunchtime and one day come across this book, The Scottish Insurrection of 1820 by Beres Fardellis. Two names. And uh, I read it and there was Galston, where I come from, planting the tree of liberty in the 1790s and was a radical place among its handloom weavers through to the 1820s. And I'm thinking, why don't I know this? Yeah. Why have I not been educated about this? So that sparked off this thing. Maybe this mm -hmm. isn't the way it should be. Yeah. So therefore, therefore, and that was in my fifth or sixth year at Kelly Academy. I was having these thoughts. So therefore, when I went to university and discovered there was a course in Scottish literature, and within that, you had to do English language, and within that, there was a course on the history of Scots, 
which is what I spoke all the time at home with my parents and grandparents. Then I thought, right, this is for me. So I basically, you know, I became a a working class boy who educated himself in the history and culture of his nation mm-hmm. and never looked back. And therefore, with the proselytizing and zeal of the Covenanters, who also came from Ayrshire, I decided, right, I'm going to tell other folk about this. Yeah, absolutely. Because it made a huge difference to me. And I thought, if I tell other people, it could make a huge difference to them. Well, one thing you're highlighting there, of course, is the idea that Scottish people have never got taught Scottish history. <laughs> to a certain extent. Or you might if be they lucky. have been Scot- taught Scottish history, they've been taught it from an English perspective. Uh, depends on, it's all luck. Right. It depends who your teacher was. Right. There are some amazing people who come on and say, I got this and I got that. And others say they got nothing. Right. And probably the ones who got nothing are more common than the ones who say that they were educated as Scots. Well, I don't remember getting anything myself at school. Right, uh, right. We get taught about English kings, Henry yes. VIII, and all sorts of stuff, and, you know, just English history, basically. Yeah. Uh, I, I do not remember any Scottish history at all. Right, uh, right. You know? I mean, yeah, when I was listening to this, the other podcast you did with uh, Derek, I think, we, again, you were talking about the, uh, that word that's in my head again. Uh, colonialism. Colonialism, yeah. And what you were talking about in, in relation to, to art. Uh, and, I, and you also said, uh, this is not a criticism, uh, that, uh, you know, independence, everybody seems to think it's about economics. You know, it's about, uh, it's about pen, pounds and shillings or whatever, you know. Uh, it's not about that. It's about our culture, etc. And I think that's true, you know, that of course it's true, you know, to, to a large extent, but it also is about all the other stuff surrounding that. I was listening to uh, the, uh, a guy on uh, one of these Scottish uh, YouTube programs, which I think you were on as well. I can't remember the name of it. Well, it was a was guy it Bruce? Alf Baird. He was getting interviewed on it. I don't know if you've heard of me. He wrote a book. Uh, let me see, called... Funnily enough, I've never met Alf Beard, but I'm right. going to meet him, I think, in, in Dunfermline. Right. Uh, at the end of July, he's taking part in something, one language that I'm right. taking okay. part in. But I've, no, I've never met Alf. Well, he, wrote, he wrote a book called Dun Hoden, The Social yes. Political Determinants of Scottish Independence. Dun Hoden apparently means t- to subjugate. Uh, yeah, to, ho- uh, to hold somebody down. Uh, yeah, exactly. If you're Dun Hoden, you're a subjugated people, yeah. Yeah, and he talks about how, you know, a lot of people, you know, if you mention the word uh, colonialism or Scotland being a colony, you get all sorts of ridicule and people come down on you like a ton of bricks. Uh, yes. So, so his, his book, he says, as he looks in his book, uh, what are the sort of uh, markers of a colonial country? And right. If I was to hold that against Scotland, how would Scotland fare? <laughs> yes, and, and in his view, having done that work, he says that it, Scotland is absolutely one hundred percent treated as a colony. All the right. things, all the markers are there, <coughs> uh, and just for the sake of our our chat, and because I'm uh, liking, I want to uh, get people onto the side of the Scottish independence. He listed them all, which which I found completely and utterly shocking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he was saying, "Well, what you've got." In all of these countries that are being colonial colonizes, you get low population growth, you get underdeveloped trading infrastructure, lack of ports, etc., mm-hmm. uh, the ability to trade with the rest of the world. Uh, all of these things are present in Scotland. Uh, it doesn't develop, you know. So, and he's an expert in the maritime and ports. And he says, in the last right. fifty years, the world has changed entirely in terms of ports. Scotland has done nothing. You know, there's nothing. Happened. Yes, lack of economic diversity. All of Scotland's top jobs are advertised in London and mostly filled by English incomers, and that includes in all the ones in the arts. Uh, yes. You've got a lack of development in, in your own talent, and this was the, the, the statistic that shocked me most. It said that in the main top universities in Scotland, that includes like uh, Glasgow University, only about 10% of professors' jobs are Scottish, which is really unbelievable. Still. <laughs> This is what he's telling me, so I have to believe him. Uh, he said that most of our major in, in arts institutions are headed up by English incomers. 
uh, our media, which we know is controlled from London, uh, mm -hmm. and our native language is suppressed, which of course you are aware yeah. of, you know. Uh, and all of these things are the things that those who, who are colonizing are in the book. This is how you run a colony. You do all of these yes. things, you know, you discourage uh, trade routes, you discourage development, uh, you try to bring the citizens into your culture. So you make yes. them, you, you promote your culture to them. And so I raise their culture. That's again, it's in the book. It's, it's quite yes. a crucial thing you try to do to get people on board. And you, the end result, of course, is to try and get people to disown their own culture and become part yes. of it. You know, it's this, it's this notion, which I think you mentioned in abstract, perhaps earlier on, that if you want to get people cohesively together as British, you have everybody has to be taught the same thing and to have the same yes. values and to, and to understand the world in the same way. It's part of, sort of uh, strengthening your control over the big picture. Yes. Uh, so he, he talks about all that and much more. And he says all of these markers uh, apply to Scotland. And there can be no doubt that they apply to Scotland. And yet when you talk about colonialism, everybody goes, don't be so ridiculous. That, that just, Scotland is not a colony. Uh, no, but the difference is, the difference is, I don't think, not many people say it's an economic colony. Yeah. What I say is it's a cultural colony. Its right. mentality has been colonised, which is a very different thing from what happened with the, 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 the British colonies in, say, Ceylon right. or, or India or, or Africa or the Portuguese colonies in Africa, where, or even worse, the Belgian colony in Congo which was totally about exploiting and taking mm -hmm. as much wealth out of the colony as possible, giving a few people a, a few a, positions of power a, to keep the elites and, and the native population happy. That didn't, that didn't happen in Scotland, but what happened was a much more subtle thing over hundreds of years of the erosion of the native identity and the culture and the idea that to go on in the world, you had to go in an English direction, mm -hmm. and therefore some of the cologne, some of the the discussion around a colony isn't as dire as it was in classic colonies like the Belgian Congo. But some some of the the especially cultural uh, areas of discussion are very valid because on Twitter today there are people saying they have never heard heard of Scots. They don't know they didn't know that Scots existed and it was invented by the SNP ten years ago. Yeah. You know, this is this is a literature with a thousand year history and there's people, adult human beings alive in Scotland today who say that they have never heard of it that it doesn't exist and that it's all been invented by political nationalists in the last decade. I mean, if that's not a symbol of, of colonialism, then yeah. I don't know what is. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's one of the aspects you talked about, actually, was this notion of people opting in uh, and becoming champions of the colonizers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which exactly. is a well-known phenomenon. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, they say, you know, Scotland is full of these people. Uh, who, who are so much uh, part of the that mindset that they don't have a clue that that mindset even exists. You know, it's yes. just, which reminds right. me. You know, it reminds me of some of the things that taught me at university when we were talking about ideologies and about Plato and Aristotle and uh, yeah. you know this this notion of you you can't see out with your own world to know what what you look like. Yes. <laughs> You know, you don't, because you're so, so caught up in who you, you know, the world you're in, uh, that you just do not have any understanding. That's right. Anything, you know, that you may not yes. actually be typical. <laughs> yes. Know, you know, every, everybody else is, should, if somebody doesn't like you or not like you is, is peculiar. Yes. You're not peculiar. You're yes. just normal, you know, but, mm -hmm. but that idea, you get caught, so caught up in it that you can't see beyond it. I think yes. that's part of it. Uh, and it's not it's not to denigrate people because that's me uh, prior to uh, the first independence referendum to a certain extent 
right. uh, because I would have voted no uh, with because I I grew up in politics and as much as a kind of a socialist left leaning yeah. politics as, as part of the Labour Party I was a member and this idea that we're all helping ourselves and why why should yeah. we split up you know we're all the one people so yeah. I had that mindset you know I had that yeah. and I can recognise it uh, what that is you know and. You know, there's certain comfort in that as well, and, and it's an ideology. So I can see that. Yep. But this idea of the that it's to do with art, I think that it, I, I agree to a certain extent. But it wasn't my way of coming to Scottish independence. My way of coming to mm -hmm. Scottish independence was, was through anger, when I discovered all sorts of things uh, which are, were related to Scotland getting treated like shit. Yeah, yeah. Put it, put it blunt, bluntly, uh, and getting exploited. Uh, and mm -hmm. the amount of money that was flowing out of Scotland, yes, which we did not know about. Mm -hmm. uh, and me, it was prior to the two thousand and fourteen independence referendum. Say, I was, I would have voted no, but I thought uh, I need to learn a bit about this. This is a very, very mm -hmm. big decision. Uh, yes, this is, for, this is probably the biggest decision in my life. So I should do some research. <laughs> and yeah. when I started to research it, it was just one thing after the other. Of yes. My God, <laughs> this is unbelievable. Yes, uh, you know, uh, and me and reading all sorts of smart people like yourself who who turned my head, uh, and also revealing how my own sort of culture had been uh, hidden, and it's not that I wasn't aware of it. I mean, as say, I, as somebody who was interested in art and had read Ferguson and had listened to mm -hmm. you, know, you know, had read lots of stuff that. But yeah. I had never put all the things together, yes. You know, uh, and made all the connections strong enough for me to say I'm a supporter of Scottish independence. Mm -hmm. It was only when I'd fully sort of got charged with all the things that I was reading that I suddenly thought, "How blind have I been in the past?" Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, I mean, I was the uh, the typical cringy person <laughs> who thought that. It felt like a provincial, and all yeah, that comes yeah. down south. Yes, uh, yes. And that's where the serious stuff was, and that's where the serious intellectual debate was. And up here, it was all pretending newspapers and pretending debate. That's mm -hmm. where I was, unfortunately. So I can right, understand. right. Oh well, you've come a long way, Jim. I can baby. understand uh, why people or how people can think that. Yes. Uh, and unfortunately, I mean, that doesn't make me particularly great at converting people because I get angry too easily. I'm not, I'm not the level-headed person that will, that will turn you in, on to independence. <laughs> right, right. That's, that's more people like yourself uh, <laughs> and other folk that are more, mm -hmm. you know, taking it from an edu educational point of view. But I can understand to say that, that how people be, are that way. Uh, yes. I definitely was that person in the past. But I mean, I, I'm guessing from your point of view, you you always were an independent supporter. Is that right? Or yeah, just just yeah. just I was instinctively. Yeah, I was instinctively from a te from my teenage years. I just responded strongly to the stimulus of reading Scottish literature and Scottish right. history, and uh, just I naturally identified with that. And looking back there, for example, that. Uh, getting Sunset Song as a prize when I was about 16 and the famous passage that I put on Twitter the other day, which is I've got it in the Mother Tongue book, the passage where Chris, the young woman, young girl in Sunset Song, talks about the, the bilingual tension between her or between Scots and English and ends saying that the English words were so sharp and clean and true that they could never say anything that was worth saying at all. Well, that was me. I mean, yeah. I was a fully, fully bilingual Scots and English speaker when I was read that age 16. And that was just, Gibbon was describing my life exactly. So I just responded to that. And looking, looking back, of course, Gibbon and the, the the writers in the early Scottish Renaissance, Hugh McDermott, Sorley MacLean, they were all nationalists. They were mm -hmm. all early supporters of uh, the National Party that only came around in the 1920s and early 1930s, but they were all instinctively yeah. knew that that was the way Scotland had to go. 
the Hearts other great figure. Hearts Grey, of course, as well. You know, Grey later on, yeah, yeah Grey. The, the later, the later yeah. revival in the 1980s, yeah. Right, yeah course, but right, yeah. Most of the great literary figures have yeah. been supporters of Scottish independence. And I responded to that too. And was your mother and father interested in politics and independence or were they... My my mum died in in a heart attack when she was only in her early 60s. So so that was was in the early 1980s. So it was really before the the big surge towards uh, votes for a parliament. Uh, My dad, like you, was old Labour. And uh, I think... He wasn't alive for the last independence referendum. So I think he might have turned because his family had turned. All my family supported independence. So I think he probably would have turned and joined joined our side, so to speak. But his generation, you know, fought in the Second World War in the British Army. And it was a good cause. It was against fascism. So Mm -hmm. that was part of their identity too. So I understand some of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, not joining the cause, but I think anybody younger than that who didn't have the the army and and eventually the Queen will go too, and there'll be a few who will not support the United Kingdom because of that too. But I can understand some of the very old generation feeling that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, more of them have to be converted. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have to convert, we have to j- slowly and gently persuade everyone to vote our we come the next referendum because it is crucial. If it doesn't happen next time, it will fall apart yeah. and will implode for generations. I agree, and yeah. Generations will be lost and the erosion of the culture will be such that, you know, the prophecy of the early union Absolutely. that we would all become North Britons could come true. But yeah. uh, it's not going to because we're going to vote for independence the next yeah. time around. Again, I was listening to somebody talking about that and they were saying, I think they were talking about Quebec, is that correct? Does that, does that ring a bell? Did they have yes. a, an independence vote? And they had two. Yes. Uh, and the guy was saying, well, the one, if you look at examples across, you know, in the, in the past, you have a hot time for independence in a country. Yes. And if you don't strike when it's yes. hot, it then fritters away. Yeah, <laughs> because what happens is people decide, well, that's never going to happen. We've lost it yeah. twice. We might as well get on with it. We're stuck, and the actual impetus and even the debates just stop. They just don't ha- happen anymore. Uh, yes. So, yes. So unless it happens, well, that, this that time, would be the day. That's why this, you know, now literally now's the day and now's the hour. Yeah. So that's we have to really go for it this time because it has to happen this time. Absolutely. Well, well, Billy, uh, that's such a good place to stop. (laughs) (laughs) If the people listening to this, some of them wouldn't be independent supporters, probably left a long time ago, actually. Uh, But if they're still here, (laughs) (laughs) perhaps that'll have an effect on them. (laughs) Very good. I've I've taken up enough of your time anyway. So it was really, really nice to talk to you. Uh, nice we'll to keep, talk to you, keep Jim. In, keep in touch, okay? <laughs> okay. And Have a good day. Catch you later. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. What an eloquent and articulate man you are. It's been an honour to chat with you. Thanks very much for agreeing to come on the podcast, Jim and Pat's Glasgow West End Chat. Okay, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, That's all we have for now. One little tip for you, don't uh, spend too much time in the sun. Catch you next time.